Hello, my name is Seth Hahn, and today I'll be reading from Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks out on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those following were shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Seth. Well, welcome to Disciples Church. My name is Dave Hahn. I'm very, very, very grateful uh, that you have all joined us this evening. Uh, it is certainly and always my privilege to be able to open God's Word with and for you all tonight. So in 2006, I had the extraordinary privilege to visit the Democratic Republic of Congo on a mission trip. It's about uh, the center uh, of Africa. Not big on tourism. Uh, not many people go there. Uh, it's experienced a, a, a long and brutal and awful tribal war. Um, but we had gone as a, as a worship team, and in a lot of ways, it felt like jumping inside the pages of National Geographic. Um, it, there are countless stories that I could tell for days about all of the things that we saw and all of the things that we experienced, but one story that I would tell is in regards to how we were greeted by the Congolese people. We traveled in vans, and whenever we would enter a town, the streets would be lined with people on either side, often many people deep. And we would enter in going, oh, I wonder what's going on. And as it turns out, they were cheering and clapping and playing music for us. And when we asked about it, as one would, here was the explanation. They see your coming as a sign of hope. Things must be getting better in Congo if Americans are visiting us. And personally, I was both humbled and uncomfortable with this kind of treatment. And I remember thinking, we cannot sustain the kind of hope that they seem to have placed in us. And after some reflection, I came to understand that they were living in a long and dark period of their country's history and that all they needed was a glimmer of hope and of light. Regardless from where or from whom that glimmer came. And that, to them, is what we represented. And upon having been given hope and having seen a glimmer of light, they had reason to cheer and shout and hope again. And so it is with all of mankind when we find ourselves in desperate places, including the people of Jesus' day that we read about in today's passage, 
Friends, everyone needs hope and a reason to rejoice. Since we began our study in the book of Mark on January 5th of this year, you have heard us say several times that the gospel of Mark is divided into two parts. In chapters 1 through 8 or so, Mark wants to show his readers who Jesus is. And in the remaining chapters through 16, Mark wants to make clear why Jesus came. By focusing on Jesus' deliberate journey toward Jerusalem where he would die, be buried, and rise again. So in today's text, Jesus and his disciples reach the destination that they have been heading towards over the last two and a half chapters of Mark. They have finally reached Jerusalem. And in their arrival, we begin what is known as the last week of Jesus' life on earth, though only Jesus understood it to be so. If you have any church experience, you know that this story from Scripture is normally told in spring. On the Sunday before Easter is when we celebrate Palm Sunday, not five days or six days or whatever it is before Christmas. But personally, I I love that we're talking about Palm Sunday so close to Christmas, and here's why. The telling of the Christmas story has become so sweet and so serene and so sanitized that it is easy to forget that the baby asleep in the hay was born to die. That the baby in the manger is the man on the cross. The baby who, according to the song Away in a Manger, never cried, was mocked, was spat upon, flogged, and killed on a brutal Roman cross. And so today, let the serenity of the Christmas baby be joined in your mind with who that baby grew up to be and ultimately what he came to do for you and for me. Because today's passage begins with his entrance into the city where everything God declared would happen for thousands of years did happen. Verses 1 through 6, I'll read it again. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. Now the Gospel of Mark doesn't actually make clear what we know to be true of Jewish men and women at this time, that it was common for the people of Israel to make several pilgrimages to Jerusalem throughout one's life and participate in as many of the major Jewish feasts as possible. We know from the other Gospels that this was not Jesus' first time in Jerusalem. There are several gospel records of his visiting Jerusalem throughout his life. He was there just days after his birth, he was there in his youth, and he was there throughout his adult public ministry. And today's passage finishes with Jesus standing in the very temple in which he was circumcised as a baby. 
standing in the same temple where he was found teaching the religious leaders as a 12-year-old boy. But today's story doesn't begin with Jesus in Jerusalem. It begins just outside of Jerusalem in Bethphage and Bethany, which were nearby cities which sat at the foot of the Mount of Olives, about a mile or two out from Jerusalem. And it was here that Jesus sent two of his disciples to get some transportation. And the mode of transportation mattered greatly because it would help identify him as Messiah the long-awaited Messiah and fulfill what was prophesied in the book of Zechariah. Zechariah 9, verse 9 reads, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It was unmistakable. So there are over 400 prophecies in the Old Testament telling God's people who the Messiah would be, what he would do, and when and how he would come. And Jesus fulfilled all of them. He fulfilled all of them, including the one about Israel's true king and Messiah riding a donkey into its most holy city. And apart from the prophetic fulfillment of Jesus riding a donkey, it also spoke of the manner in which Jesus entered Jerusalem. You see, to enter a city on a colt or a donkey rather than a war horse or with chariots was a posture of peace, not a posture of war. And by riding atop a donkey, the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, declared his intent and his mission. Verses 2 through 6, I think, are fascinating in the details that they offer. Jesus gives two of his disciples some very specific instructions. Go to the next village. Immediately as you enter, you'll find a colt tied up. Untie it. Someone might ask you about it. Tell them I need it, and we'll get it back to them. Those are the instructions. Now, we don't know which disciples Jesus sent. We know that there were two of them. But putting myself in either one of their shoes, I would have found this to be a very strange command. How would Jesus have known these things? And I likely would have been anticipating a night in prison for some level of property theft. Because donkeys weren't pets. They were property. But the two disciples did as Jesus commanded and things happened exactly as Jesus said that they would. No surprise there, I guess. He's God. But what about the people who questioned the disciples? The people standing around who questioned them. Why did they let the disciples take the donkey? Did they know Jesus? Had Jesus prearranged that he was going to have disciples come and take the donkey? Or were they on the other end of some kind of Jedi mind trick forcing them to do something that they otherwise would not have done? We can't know for sure, but here's the underlying beauty in these verses, I think. God's will was accomplished in a very unusual way through obedience to an unusual command. God's will was accomplished in a very unusual way 
through obedience to an unusual command. And here's why that matters to you and to me. Friends, if God leads you or I to say something to someone or do something for someone, no matter how strange it may seem to you and I, we need to be like these two disciples and those who are questioning what the disciples were doing and obey him. Have you ever felt as though God was asking you to do or say something that didn't quite make sense to you and because it didn't make sense to you, you didn't do it? Or have you done it and found yourself amazed at what it was that God had in mind? Because by doing those things that God commands us to do, no matter how strange, he might just be using us to bless someone and accomplish his perfect will. So when you find yourself in need and you can't imagine how God is going to provide, is there really going to be a donkey as we enter this town tied to a door? Be like the disciples and recognize that the means through which he provides for his children may come about in an unusual way, but it will come. Is that the easiest or most usual way to find a donkey? Probably not. And yet God provided that way. Now I ask this often, but I think it makes sense to ask it again. When has God, my friends, believer or unbeliever, not provided for you? When has he not provided for you? And in providing for you, how often has his provision come about in a time and in a manner in which you expected? How many times has God provided and you have found yourself going, that's exactly when and how I thought it would happen? Friends, all you need and all that he wants you to have is at his disposal and he will not withhold any good thing from you. Verse 7, and they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Now Mark doesn't get into how large the crowds were, but in John's gospel we learn that the number of Jesus' followers and his enemies have increased. So look, listen to John 12 beginning in verse 9. Verse 9, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, this would be in Bethany with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So in one enormous crowd at the Sheep's Gate of Jerusalem, there are two distinct groups. The many who witnessed Lazarus being raised from the dead, praising Jesus for the miracle that they had seen, and a smaller group of powerful religious leaders who were angry with Jesus because people were abandoning them to follow him. And so frustrated were they that they wanted to kill Lazarus who had just been raised. One group wanted Jesus as their king, and the other group wanted him dead. 
That is the crowd that was gathered around Jesus. So Jesus had been in public ministry at that point for about three years, and he had spent most of that time not seeking worship, right? We've been through 11 chapters, and we hear over and over and over again Jesus telling people to be quiet, Jesus doing things in private. He was walking from place to place as he went about his ministry, and he was trying to avoid attention that kept him from his true mission. But on this day... Jesus gladly receives adoration and worship, and he avoids the dusty roads by sitting atop a donkey with a significant amount of attention on him. So what changed? What changed? I think it is simply this. The fulfillment of Jesus' true purpose in coming, his death and his resurrection, was drawing near. The fulfillment of his true purpose in coming, his death and his resurrection, was drawing near. Jesus had purposely kept a low profile until now because his detractors wanted him dead, but his time for dying had not yet come. You'll find passages like that throughout the Gospels. They're ready to throw him off a cliff, but his time had not yet come. But... These were the days, and now was the time. And so, he allowed his followers to stir while his enemies plotted his impending death. And stir and plot they did. When we read, and many spread their cloaks on the road, it's important that we not read it with our Western eyes. We don't really throw our cloaks on the ground for much. If we do, it's generally an accident. But as Jonathan mentioned last week, for many of Jesus' day, a cloak was likely the only and certainly the most expensive article of clothing that people owned. So to throw off one's cloak or to lay it down before Jesus could have very well been an act of worship. But most certainly, it was a gesture of submission. A gesture of submission. To lay down the best, maybe the only valuable piece of clothing that you owned was to say to the one who trod upon it, I am under you. Do as you please. I am under you. Do as you please. You can walk on my cloak. You have power over me. But was this surrender or this act of worship sincere? We will see as the remainder of Mark's gospel unfolds in the weeks to come. Verses 9 through 10, And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. It is in these two verses, friends, that we're going to spend the bulk of our time today answering three questions. Who was shouting? What were they shouting? And why were they shouting it? Who was shouting? What were they shouting? And why were they shouting it? So who was shouting? Well, verse 9 says it was those who went before and those who followed. These are Jesus' disciples. Jesus' disciples were at the front of him, to the side of him, behind him. 
And this wasn't just Peter, James, and John. It wasn't just the 12 disciples that we so famously know, nor was it the 72 that are often referred to as Jesus' disciples in the Bible. Luke's account describes the crowd as the whole multitude of his disciples. So this would have been the three, it would have been the 12, it would have been the 72, and anybody else that was following him because they were fascinated with who he is and what he was doing, whether they believed or not. But that was not everyone in Jerusalem, certainly not at Passover. The city of Jerusalem is and was never so busy as it was during Passover. And as we mentioned earlier, Jesus had accrued a strong contingent of enemies, and that group was getting bigger and angrier. In addition, many of those who were throwing down their cloaks and shouting words of praise at him in this moment would be shouting, crucify him, in just a few days. So this isn't quite the celebration that it's usually made out to be. It may not even qualify as a triumphal entry. Some of you probably have that little title above this section in your Bible. Was it really a triumphal entry? So what were they shouting, these disciples? Two major ideas with some variation. Hosanna and Hosanna highest. And blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna is a shout of exclamation made up of two Hebrew words. The word yasha, which means to save or deliver. And ana, which means please, I beseech. And so, as the crowd cried, Hosanna, they were saying unto Jesus, please save us. Please save us. Saved is a word that Christians use fairly often. But I was thinking this week, I was wondering this week, if believers, much less non-believers, Understand what that word means. What does the word saved mean? And what does it have to do with Jesus? The word saved, as used in the word of God, carries with it the connotation of rescue, of deliverance, of being set free. And implicit in each of those definitions is that the subject being saved is in danger or imprisoned in some way. Conversely, a person who is not in danger or not imprisoned has no need of being saved, right? But this crowd believed they needed to be saved, and they cried, Hosanna, please save us. They believed they needed to be rescued, delivered, or set free from something. But what? What did they need to be saved from? So we'll hold that thought, and we'll get back to it. So, Hosanna, please save us, is a cry of salvation, and by adding in the highest to Hosanna was to recognize that the blessing of this salvation could only come from heaven. In the highest was an indicator that this was only going to come from heaven. Because in the Jewish mind, the highest was heaven. 
And both Hosanna and all its variations, as well as blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, are phrases that all find their roots in the Old Testament and in the Psalms. And they are declarations that God's Messiah and his kingdom are coming and even now have come. To cry these things out was to cry unto the Messiah, to cry unto God thanking him that his kingdom had come. The people of Israel knew that God had promised a kingdom in which his Messiah would reign, and they longed for it. It would be a kingdom of peace and glory, a kingdom promised to David and his descendant who would be the Messiah, one who would be both David's son and David's Lord. These were messianic acclamations, and Jesus was the subject. That's what they were shouting. But why were they shouting these things? And why were they shouting them now? Jesus had begun his final week on earth during Passover in the year A.D. 30 or so. More specifically, he entered Jerusalem on the 10th day of the month in which Passover was observed. And this 10th day was what Jews referred to as Lamb Selection Day. The day in which the Passover lamb for that year would be chosen. And Christians call this day Palm Sunday. Same day. And just like a Passover lamb, Jesus was inspected. And he was chosen by the people of Israel as he rode the donkey and his people heralded him as God's Messiah. But... But this crowd falsely believed that their greatest enemy was Rome and its occupation of their nation. They falsely believed that their greatest enemy was Rome and its occupation of their nation. And it was that Roman occupation that they wanted to be saved from. Saved from what? Roman occupation, Roman oppression. They have taken over our nation, and we want to be saved from it. And it was Rome's defeat and the reestablishment of Israel's sovereignty that they expected Jesus to bring. So not only do we expect you to conquer Rome, but we expect for you to reestablish our nation as a sovereign one. That's what they wanted to be saved from. But Rome was not their greatest threat. They were wrong. Rome was not their greatest threat, nor any other earthly trouble. And Jesus had not come to be a militaristic king. He didn't come to free Israel from Roman rule, and he has not come to save or deliver or rescue you and me from our political struggles or from our earthly woes. He came to save Israel, friends. And he came to save you and me from the power of sin which enslaves us. He came to save us from the power of sin which enslaves us and he came to save us from the punishment that sin deserves and ultimately kills us. He saved us 
from the power of sin, and he saves us from the punishment of sin, which is death. Is there any greater enemy than our sin, which leads to death and separates us from God? Is there anything that you can think of that would be a greater enemy to you and me than our sin, which kills us and separates us from God forever? On Lamb Selection Day in Jerusalem, A.D. 30 or so, two Passover lambs were chosen. And on the Friday of that same week, those two Passover lambs would be sacrificed for the sins of the people. And that is the day that Christians call Good Friday. Do you think God wanted to make it obvious? Do you think that Jesus came to Jerusalem on Lamb Selection Day and died on the day that the Lamb would be sacrificed by accident? Or was God saying something to the people of Israel and to those who would believe in him? Two lambs were chosen, but only one of those lambs would take away the sins past, present, and future of those who believed in him. Only one lamb could and did do that. And that lamb would rise again three days later so that you and I and all of those who would believe would not taste death. In AD 30, God's people were living in dark days largely unaware that the light of the world, God's Passover lamb, had come. And that in him was the fulfillment of every prophecy made regarding God's Messiah. Crowds followed him, for sure. But they misunderstood who he truly was and why he truly came. And as such, he was surrounded by people who were looking for a conquering Messiah and a miracle worker. He was chased down by jealous religious leaders who were threatened by his popularity and who wanted him dead. But he remained resolute because Jesus knew who he was and he knew why he came. He entered the very city where he knew he would be rejected and killed by its leaders and that even his most devoted followers would abandon him for a time. And still he went. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday was somewhat similar to his birth, his resurrection, and his ascension in that each of these moments were extraordinarily magnificent, miraculous, and powerful, far more than anything else that we tend to make much of here on earth. And yet, for all intents and purposes, each of these moments occurred in relative obscurity. Jesus did not receive the fanfare that he so rightly deserved, but it would not be so for long. It wouldn't always be that way. 
When Jesus ascended to his Father and sat down at his right hand, being given the name that is above all names, and heaven declared him the King of kings. He ascended into heaven, sat down at the right hand of God the Father, was given the name that is above every name, and was declared the King of kings. And one day, when Jesus returns, his second advent, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord and that he is king of both heaven and earth, receiving the fanfare that he deserves. So in Congo, 14 years ago, we were greeted with shouts of joy and shouts of acclamation but we didn't deserve it. We couldn't give them what they most needed, and we could only tell them of the one who could. That was all we were able to do. And that, my friends, is the Christian life. That's the Christian life. That no matter where on the planet we find ourselves, whether we are cheered for it or whether we are shouted down, we proclaim Christ and him crucified. That is our only boast, and that is our only message. Because Jesus is this world's only hope. So the Congolese people, like those who surrounded Jesus on Palm Sunday, had a choice to make. To reject Jesus by putting their hope in someone or something else, or to receive him by faith and worship him. And that same choice stands before you and me and everybody in the sound of my voice today. So will you reject Jesus, seeing him as a threat to your own desire to be God, just like the religious leaders? Or will you love and follow Jesus so long as he gives you what you want and does the stuff that you want him to do? just like the fickle-hearted men and women who cried crucify him five days later because he wouldn't be the conquering king they expected. You have a third choice. To surrender to and follow Jesus, believing that he alone is God. That he alone is your Passover lamb, your Lord, your God, and your king, and that he alone has provided an answer to your shouts of Hosanna. Please save me. Please save me. He answered that cry on the cross. He answered that cry in his resurrection from the dead and his ascension to the Father and in giving you his Holy Spirit. Friends, Jesus Christ alone can save you from your greatest of enemies. And Jesus Christ alone can save you to the eternal life that God made you for. So give him all of your love, all of your worship, both today and always, because there is no one and there is nothing more worthy of it. Let's pray. Thank you, O our Father, for giving us your Son. 
the lamb who takes away the sins of the world, the Messiah who rescues and redeems us from that which enslaves and kills us. The king who through his own shed blood and resurrected body was given the name that is over every name and will rule and reign forever for our joy and for his glory. And while his coming on Palm Sunday may not have been as triumphant as it should have been, we rejoice in knowing that it is in his second coming he will receive the glory he is due on earth as it already is in heaven. We thank you, Jesus, that in you we have our salvation, saved from sin and its power and from death its punishment, and that we are free to do as we ought not as we would. Let our thoughts, words, and deeds honor you in all ways. We thank you, Jesus, that you left the glory of heaven for a humble stall, knowing what lay before you. It stuns us to know that your love for us is so great that you would look to the horror of the cross and see within it the joy of being with us forever. Open the eyes and minds of those who have heard these stories but have not yet seen or understood or believed. Renew those of us who have believed, who have seen, who have understood, but have lost the initial joy of our salvation. Help us to know and to see your incomparable beauty. You alone, Lord God, are the light of this world, and by your spirit, your light now lives within us. May it be seen through us this Christmas season and always. For the sake of Jesus' name and his glory we ask. Amen.